Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, let's speak to one of the business owners that's affected by this now, Dave Kershaw. Dave is the owner of the Cabana Lounge Nightclub, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mike. How you doing, man? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Your place is on Granville, right? That's correct, yeah. yeah. How long have you been in business down there? Oh, geez. I mean, um, Cabana's been open for eight years, but I've owned bars on Granville since 96, so I've been, uh, <laughs> been around a while. Okay, so this is not your first rodeo. I know, I know it's not your first shutdown no. I, either. So um, t- tell me how this affects you. Your place has got to close down, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we have to close down uh, under the mandate. And I mean, um, it's going to cost us. You know, uh, I mentioned on the news yesterday, it's going to cost us a couple hundred thousand dollars in sales at a sort of a critical time when New Year's Eve is sort of, it is the biggest night of the year mm-hmm. and a real chance for us to kind of, make some money before January kicks in. Um, I had to refund about $10,000 of the deposits yesterday. Um, yeah, wow. so a, a bit frustrating, a little bit disappointing, and kind of a bit puzzling why um, we're particularly shut down, but restaurants and, you know, pubs can operate with limited capacity, which I, you know, believe and know we can do because we've done it. So um, I believe we could have operated safely during this time, but... Such is not the case, according to Dr. Bonnie Henry. So, yeah, we're shut down. Okay, that was kind of surprising. I, I spoke to some pub owners yesterday who were bracing for a possible shutdown or capacity limits or operating hours getting restricted, and they got they got through this. I mean, the, the pubs are still open. So what do you think of that? I mean, you're, you're categorized as a nightclub, right? Well, yeah, we're, we're both liquor primaries, though. Um, and just a little nuance in the description of the difference of the liquor license. And honestly, the big difference is that, you know, they have a food menu and, uh, you know, <laughs> watch sport games there. And people come just to kind of, you know, uh, mingle and have a night out. Now, we haven't had dancing. That's the big differentiation, I guess, between a nightclub and a pub in a lot of people's minds. But we haven't had dancing for a long time. And we've been managing this situation by keeping people separate with their own groups at their tables for a long time now. And I've gotten pretty darn good at doing it. And um, yeah, I just don't know why we wouldn't have been given the chance to operate the way pubs are. Could you go back to and like get a new license and just say, okay, I'm a pub now. I'm going to serve food. You know, (laughs) we're going to make sure people stay at their tables and don't move around. And and I'm a pub now and stay open. Is I mean, is that an option for you? Well, I don't have a kitchen, and oh. you making that kind of amendment to your license is actually a, a lengthy process where you got to go through okay. approval through local government, so it's not really an option to do that, no. Okay, speaking of Dave Kershaw, he's the owner of the Cabana Lounge nightclub on Granville Street. He's owned a lot of uh, bars, bars down in the entertainment district there. Dave, you mentioned that this is going to cost you a couple of hundred grand. Wow, then that's huge. I mean, can you put that in perspective? I mean, like... Is that a loss you can absorb, or is or is this a threat to your your business? You know, um, we're going to make it through like we did last time, but I would expect that our you know elected officials would do the right thing and 
um, provide businesses that have been ordered shut, you know, proper compensation to cover costs that are coming up, like my $28,000 rent that's due on the first that I'm sure the landlord is going to want in full. Um, I mean, why wouldn't he? Right. Um, and just help us get through this, um, period. I mean, I'm not sure there is any clear data given why restaurants and pubs could remain open, but nightclubs could shut. Um, I didn't hear any. Well, I guess they argue that like a place like yours, a nightclub would attract a lot of younger people at night. Uh, people would, would crowd in there, move around, mingle, and it's too risky an environment. Like, are you buying that? Like, do you think your place was risky for spread of the virus? What I can tell you is that um, my crowd is actually more of an adult crowd. And if you look at a couple of the quotes, pubs on Granville, they're full of college kids, um, mm. you know, uh, and my crowd's more of an adult crowd, to be frank. And we're set up for table service. So everyone's, we've got booths everywhere in Kamana. Just that's our business model. So it would have been very easy for me to keep people safe. I left up the COVID guards from the beginning. I never took them down. I just said, hey, you know what? We'll just leave them up cost me 10 grand to put them there in the first place, get some more mileage out of them. And just in case we go backwards in regulations, now we have, um, they would have been still there. But, you know, that that argument doesn't really fly because my crowd is a bit older and I have the ability to keep people separate. So, um, hmm. you know, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. How many, how many employees, how many employees do you have down there? Uh, like 50 ish around 50. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They're all laid off, obviously, now. Um, you know, I'm going to have to... I don't know if I lay them off this time. Depends on how long the shutdown's going to be. Um, I'm also wondering about compensation for them because yeah. this is a tough time to kind of pull the rug from underneath their feet as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. Um, and a, Would you I, say, like, this is the worst possible time? I mean, Christmas is just a few days away. I mean, you had big plans. This is a busy season for your business, I'm sure. You had, you, I guess you had, like, a big New Year's Eve party planned, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, on New Year's Eve, that's the biggest night of the year for, for nightlife. Um, you know, it's a huge night for us um, where we can charge a little bit more for tickets. And, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's it's disappointing not to be able to have the biggest night of the year um, able okay. to, you know, kind of pad the bank account. Okay, Dave, thanks for coming on. I know you've been through some tough times here over the last couple of years, and here we go again, and I hope you get through it again. And uh, we got some relief measures being announced in Ottawa right now, yeah. so we'll see, what the, uh, we'll see what they offer. Thank you for coming on today. Cheers, Mike. Thanks, man. Right, welcome back to the show. Looking closely at the lockdown and shutdown measures that are being announced province by province across the country, including the measures announced here yesterday in British Columbia, bars, nightclubs, gyms, fitness centers, dance studios, all shut down, indoor organized gatherings, wedding receptions, Christmas parties, New Year's Eve parties, those are all shut down. Other provinces have taken more aggressive measures in the face of the latest surge of the COVID virus. Uh, over 1,300 new cases in British Columbia yesterday is the largest ever single one-day total. I've got Dan Kelly standing by from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Have a listen to this first. This is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just a short time ago, this is just a few minutes ago, announcing an expansion of lockdown benefits for businesses that are shut down here. Have a listen. We are announcing today that we're temporary temporarily expanding eligibility for key programs. For the Canada Worker Lockdown Benefit and the Local Lockdown Program, 
you'll be able to apply if you're subject to capacity limiting restrictions. Okay, as Justin Trudeau speaking a short time ago in Ottawa, let's check in with Dan Kelly now, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business in Canada. Dan, it's nice to have you on again. Good to be with you. Okay, really super busy morning for you. I appreciate you taking the time. Your thoughts on what you just heard from the Prime Minister there? Well, it is significant progress. Gosh, we had raised with, uh, well, I spoke to the Deputy Prime Minister myself on Monday and shared with her that, uh, that the programs were just not working. Only one in five small businesses would qualify for any support from Ottawa under the new rules that were adopted just last week. Uh, and now they've, now they've changed things. They've now uh, expanded this. So businesses that are subject to the measures that British Columbia and other governments have put in place will now qualify if they have a 25% monthly loss or more, uh, and they'll be eligible for a fairly significant wage and rent support subsidy if uh, they are in that camp. That will be very helpful. We have yet to hear any major uh, any news from the BC government of any support programs there. That needs to happen still, uh, but, uh, but, but a positive step from the feds today. Yeah, we've certainly got voices here in British Columbia saying, where is the province on this? They just announced this uh, lockdown measures for some businesses yesterday, but no relief announced at the same time. You were mentioning that just last week, the federal government had rolled out some assistance programs that didn't seem to be working, that a lot of businesses could not access them. Was that a matter of, like, I was looking at the definition and some of the wording in that program, it said, it would design for Canadians who were in a com- what they call def- uh, defined as a complete, a complete lockdown. Yeah. Like, wh- what does that mean? Was that one of the problems? Yeah. That they- look, the, the many governments have moved to capacity restrictions. Uh, right. BC, of course, has locked down some, put capacity rules in place for others. Uh, many provinces have put in place a fifty percent capacity restriction, so even a retail store could serve no more than fifty percent of its capacity. Uh, as a result of that uh, change from Ottawa, businesses were not eligible for any support. Uh, if Unless you were fully locked down, basically with your doors shut and locked, yeah. you wouldn't get any money from, from these support programs. Now, the programs are going to be open to, uh, to those that are subject to a capacity restriction. You don't have to be fully locked down in order to get some subsidy dollars. So that's, that, was a, that was an important change. And the subsidy program is more generous. You have to have a 25% loss. Uh, instead of, uh, depending on your sector, a 40 or 50% loss in order to get some support. Okay, speaking of Dan Kelly from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, let me play another clip here for you from the Prime Minister, Dan, speaking just a, a few minutes ago. And here's Trudeau saying that the government has the back of workers who are losing their jobs here. Here's what he had to say. We're going to be there for the hard-hit regions, for specific sectors like art and culture, hospitality and tourism. We will be there to keep you and your family safe. We're going to continue to work closely with the provinces and territories, but we will be there with supports for the areas that need it. Okay, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking a short time ago. One of the measures he announced there, Dan, was an expansion of eligibility here for the Canada Worker Lockdown Benefit, $300 a week for workers who are basically laid off because of a COVID lockdown. Is that correct? I got that right? It, it is, yeah. So it looks like, you know, they, they ended the CERB program and then the CRB stream under EI. Unless you were affected, unless your business was subject, to, your employer was subject to a full lockdown. Similarly, as they've done for employers, 
Now for workers, your business could be affected by a capacity restriction. If you lost your job in the restaurant because the restaurant's only able to serve a limited capacity, you now will be back eligible for some support, 300 bucks a week uh, from Ottawa. Okay, I spoke to a nightclub owner earlier on the show today, Dan, Dan, Dave Kershaw from the, he owns the Cabana Lounge on Granville Street in downtown Vancouver. His place is being shut down. He says he's got his landlord, he expects his landlord to be knocking on the door here in a few days looking for the rent for January. I think he said it was like 20 grand or something like that. And, you know, meanwhile, the guy's shut down, so he's looking for help. Let me play a clip here for you from Finance Minister Christian Freeland who also spoke this morning with the Prime Minister about wage and rent supports here for business. Let's have a listen to this and I'll get your thoughts. We are announcing our decision to temporarily expand the definition of a lockdown so that these wage and rent support programs can support workers and businesses that see capacity restricted by 50% or more. It means that if you are an employer who has to reduce the capacity of your main business by 50% or more, you will be eligible for wage and rent subsidy support. Okay, Finance Minister Krista Freeland speaking a few moments ago. Dan Kelly, your thoughts on that? I guess she's expanding there what we were already speaking about there. That's right. Yeah, those, that, that will mean that that, uh, that that bar owner will be eligible Right. Uh, if he's able to hang on to any of his workers, they will be eligible for a fairly significant level of support, especially if they're fully shut down, uh, up to 75% of their wages. And then for rent, they will also be eligible to for a significant support. Again, up to 75% of rent to a max will be covered by the federal government. So that, that will provide some welcome relief. Um, these These changes, though, are also going to help those businesses that are not fully shut down Right. but just subject to a capacity restriction. And that and that will help thousands and thousands of businesses that otherwise would have gotten no help from Ottawa. Okay, is this adequate in your mind right now? Like you've been Not beating this... Not at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, you know, here's here's one of the worries. There are tons of businesses that are seeing their sales fall off a cliff not because the business has been subject to capacity restrictions, but because public health officials have told everybody to stay home, limit their contacts, and freaked everyone out. So if you're a retail store and, you're, and, you're, and your business is down by 40% because, because everybody's panicking about Omicron, you're going to get nothing, nothing from Ottawa, no help at all. If you're the dry cleaner that depends on uh, you know, office workers and the office workers now are working from home, uh, not because of uh, a, a rule, but because people are freaked out and employers are telling them to stay home, you qualify for no help. So there's tons of businesses that still will not get any help from Ottawa whatsoever, even though they're going to see just massive declines in their sales. And, and that's, that's the gap that, we're, that we still need filled. Part of that can come from, from the provincial government. Right. And um, can you speak a little bit about the timing of this? I mean, here we are at just a few days before Christmas. This is walloping businesses again. For a lot of businesses, they rely on the income at this time of year to get through the entire year. This is a crucial time, busiest time for retail, busiest time for travel, and yet here we go. Like, what kind of impact does that have on small business? Oh, it's it, this is brutal. I mean, the timing is couldn't be worse. This is just a few days before Christmas, as you said, that these are the, these are the days where you're supposed to be making some money so you can sock it away and then survive January, February, and March, which are traditionally a lot leaner. 
um, missing out on some of these days over Christmas and New Year's. I mean, gosh, this is devastating for so many businesses, especially those in hospitality, uh, all sorts of catering companies and, and you know, large restaurants that are that are used to so- serving corporate parties. I mean, that that's all gone. Yeah, so, yeah, it's it's really going to be uh, some lean months. We are expecting the number of business casualties to to mount very rapidly, even with these support programs. There's a lot of businesses that are just not going to make it because it's only covering part of their losses. And the average small firm across Canada has taken on $170,000 in COVID debt. Right. And have we seen uh, uh, those trend lines already, like businesses going bankrupt or shutting down? We have, but not uh, not to the degree that we are expecting. We we think that there's going to be an awful lot more uh, business casualties before we're before we're done. Let me ask one more question for you, Dan. Like you mentioned earlier, that you know, the government in their response to this latest surge of the virus is is freaking people out. Um, like, do you think the government's overreacting here? I mean, you know, or you know, you talk to the healthcare officials and they say, you know, you should be freaked out because of this this latest version of this virus is so. Uh, it's so transmissible. Yeah, no, look, I, I get it. I'm not a public health official, and, and obviously we need, to, we need to pay close attention to them. But at the same time, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're the Ontario public health official, the, the chief medical officer in Ontario said there's not a single person in the ICU as a result of Omicron. Yeah. So right. we're taking these measures now. I, I, I have to take them at face value that they're doing this to prevent uh, or to just to manage the risks. But... You know, it is it is really hard to say. And, and, and my point is that if, you know, regardless of whether we we can we have two cho- two choices, we either provide supports to businesses if we lock them down, restrict them in any way, or we let businesses open up. Uh, but we can't keep them in this perpetual purgatory. And that's where that's where they are right now. Dan, a busy day for you. Thank you for taking the time yes, this morning thanks so much. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about senior citizens in our province now, especially seniors who are low income. And there are many seniors in BC getting by on a limited fixed income. And this is a difficult time of year for anyone living in poverty, especially with the latest surge in the pandemic. We have some bone chilling cold weather on the way. Lots of concerns around senior citizens, especially those living on the mar- poverty margins. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sheila Malcolmson, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions in British Columbia. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Minister, thank you very much for coming on today. Morning, Mike. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here today. So when we think about seniors in BC, and so many of them are on that limited income or a fixed income, this is a tough time of year for a lot of people at the best of times. But boy, if you're living in difficult uh, circumstances, it's especially tough, especially if you're on maybe on the verge of homelessness or even losing your home, right? So true. You know, we've been seeing a lot of communities and and people, seniors especially, who never thought they would be on the margins. But all it takes is an eviction, a, a divorce, a terrible uh, you know, medical emergency. One of the women that uh, stood with us at the announcement in Nanaimo on on Monday, just described her husband um, in palliative care and her suffering a stroke, and all of a sudden she was on the verge of homelessness and and was able to get support from a community organization to help her navigate the system. But it's just a, I mean, she just said, in my wildest dreams, I never thought I would be vulnerable. I worked hard all my life. You know, just their yeah. heartbreaking stories made worse by the pandemic. And so I'm so glad that we can, we could 
find some funding to support community organizations that are giving people an extra help during a really tough time. Yeah, this can really, like you said, this can come on suddenly for someone who's on that limited fixed income and something happens, there's some sort of twist in their life and you never know. I mean, a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. And when you're a senior citizen, if you're facing something like that, you don't have that housing security. I mean, that can impact your mental health as well, right? Very much. I mean, all of this stuff as the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic and the you know real heartbreak around everything getting tighter again and, and people being again separated from their families, you know, that mental health addictions, homelessness, poverty are, we've always known that how much they intersect, but the pandemic sure has, has revealed it and exacerbated all of those impacts. Yeah. And, and especially when services in some cases, like we've added on all kinds of online counseling supports and, and, uh, and virtual healthcare, uh, mental healthcare delivery in an unprecedented way. But for seniors, that's not easy. And so that's why it's especially important for us to support community groups that can give them that extra helping hand and kind of be the in-between so they can get access to the grants that are available for seniors to make housing more affordable and connect them directly to the the new housing we're standing up that is available. It's, right. uh, we're so grateful to the frontline groups uh, helping helping out at a tough time. Right. Speaking of Sheila Malcolmson, Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. So let's let's talk a little bit, Minister, about this program that you've announced this week for seniors, mm-hmm. uh, helping them to uh, find, especially if they're at risk of homelessness. Can you tell me about this program and how people can access this assistance? Yeah. So the group that we are working with is the Seniors Services Society of BC, um, SSSBC. They've been working um, in all regions of the province, uh, Vancouver Island in Nanaimo, uh, Vancouver, including New West, um, the interior, their focus is in uh, Kelowna, and in the north, they've been working in PG. So um, in my own community where I represent, it's the Nanaimo Family Life Association, that's the NGO partner, um, and people will come to Nanaimo Family Life for a whole range of services. In this case, if there is a senior saying, I'm under mental health pressure, um, I feel like I'm drinking too much, I need some addiction support, or I'm at risk of losing housing, um, or in some cases, employment support. You know, a lot of these frontline groups you know, work in partnership with multiple ministries to help support people on the ground. In this case, um, they've got navigators built into place. The extra funding that we're providing um, is going to have a housing navigator trainer in it, um, also a virtual mental health and addiction support program. But again, it's often the people in the communities themselves that can set the senior up, you know, in front of the camera or in a private room where they can access that counselor at a distance. Yeah. But the senior doesn't need to figure out the technology at home. It's kind of a bridging and navigation support that we've been hearing is really helpful. And the COVID right. pandemic has made it even more clear. So we're expanding the program. Yeah, I mean, I like the kind of the, the frontline aspect of it, kind of grassroots to try and connect someone who's in trouble or in some crisis with, a, you know, get them some face-to-face help. Like they can they can call, they can they can go to one of these uh, these centers and get some direct help. Especially for seniors, like you said, who may have trouble navigating stuff online or trying to figure out programs themselves and need help. Yeah, 
no, and we know it's frustrating. And if people are on edge, then the you know the last thing they want is to have someone say, "Go to the website and get help." Yeah. That right. is an efficient way for us to connect people with services. But inside government, we're trying to build up those um, that in-person support and that sort of case management support. That's work that uh, Minister E. B. and Minister Dix are leading. Uh, but while we're building up that system of care, then we're really grateful to the. Um, not-for-profit service providers, like in this case with the SHINE program, and particularly for vulnerable seniors. Uh, we've heard yeah. it's made a difference, and so we're, we're going to broaden it. Yeah, a lot of senior citizens will live alone. Uh, they may not have any family uh, to help them, or they may not have any friends. I mean, this is quite common. If you take a look at uh, recent Canadian census data, it showed almost a quarter, almost 25% of seniors, uh, they live by themselves. A lot have no family. they got no friends. And you were mentioning earlier about mental health services who people may be feeling uh, may be feeling they, they need mental health counseling, they may need addiction counseling. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like what kind of services are available to people, especially at this time of year? Yeah, you know, um, something that we've heard for seniors in particular that has been um, a real godsend for them is the uh, BC211 program. Yeah. So you can go online and look BC211, but you can also text or phone 211. It is an in-person support system, and again, that navigation that can help seniors in any part of the province uh, connect with a live person that can help navigate them to whatever kind of support they need. Um, I mean, and that is across the gamut. It's specifically designed for people that um, that are feeling isolated and don't have family dropping by in the same way and and especially over Christmas, you know, not to have those in-person visits. We've heard that people have been able to connect, get connected with food, del- you know, groceries, delivery, uh, you know, a local exercise class. It just runs the gamut. But we've got also for, you know, more people, um, particular kind of interfaces that have been specifically designed for the parts of our community that we hear are under particular pressure. Um, there's a, a program that we set up early in the pandemic called Care to Speak, uh, it was designed initially for long-term care workers that we heard were really under pressure um, and now broadened for healthcare workers. We know how much pressure and how reliant we are on nurses and everybody working on the front line. So care to speak is something that people can look up online, um, again, for those folks that are working on the front line. And uh, that connects them with, with direct counselors and uh, whether they want to do some online kind of tutorials or whether they want to connect with someone that's working in their sector and, and can give them some counseling, that is available. More broadly, uh, we've got a website called wellnesstogether.ca. It's got a lot of resources, including some sort of counseling and, and mental health supports directly connected to the flooding events and people that are continue to be out of their homes and just under such terrible pressure. Um, and then just more broadly, if anybody is in crisis right now, uh, do call our crisis line. It operates across the whole province, 310-6789. That's 310-6789. There are amazing community networks across the whole province that we fund to deliver crisis line supports. There's someone live there to talk to you. And if anybody's feeling the pressure, you're in good company and know that we're um, we're, we're trying to build a multitude of ways for people to to hear a compassionate voice and and get connected with with supports that will help them through this tough time. 
That's really, that's really great to know. I'm speaking to Sheila Malcolmson, BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Minister, while I have you here, as we reflect on the year that's coming to an end here, uh, the deadliest year on record for illicit drug overdose deaths, these numbers are shocking on the number of overdose deaths we continue to see in the province happening every single day in BC. I, I know it's a high priority for you. Can, where are we at right now with um, the request to Health Canada for is it an exemption you're seeking to allow people to have to possess small amounts of these drugs for personal use only is that correct that's right this is something that the that the premier initially asked the prime minister to take up um almost two years ago now he then built it into my mandate letter because we are seeing as the coroner reports an increasing number of people that are dying of drug toxicity are dying alone in their own homes and their families often say to me they had no idea the person was struggling with addiction or was using illicit drugs. And the most dangerous thing with the terribly increased toxicity, like the coroners reported, you know, from, you know, under 10% toxicity in 2012, up to 85% uh, fentanyl uh, contamination into illicit street drugs. It's colossally more dangerous than it was in the pandemic has exacerbated that for a bunch of reasons. So, so to remove the stigma and shame from people who are using drugs, that's why decriminalization is so important. So we're trying to, we're asking for a federal exemption so that in British Columbia, people who use drugs um, under a, you know, reasonable uh, personal possession would not be charged. Police would not seize their drugs. Instead, they would be offered referrals to addictions and mental health supports. Um, that's something I'm really encouraged that there is. I do now have a federal counterpart, and you'll know that my ministry, Mental Health and Addictions, was the first in Canada. Uh, and I'm really encouraged that the federal government has now mirrored that by appointing uh, Carolyn Bennett, who is a doctor. Um, I've met with her a number of times, including in person in downtown Eastside, to talk about our application and to make sure it's on the top of her pile on her desk. Um, and I think we've got a good, a very good crack at this. We've had a fantastic broad-based uh, advisory group, the core planning table that built our application, um, and the partners you know, from okay. police associations right to um, drug advocacy organizations and people with lived experience um, continue to be involved with us to, to encourage the feds to act quickly what? and to be available to help us with implementation if they do give us a yes. Last question for you, Minister. Like this is such a complex problem, and we touched on just some small parts of it. I mean, decriminalization is one thing that you're pursuing. A lot of people are looking for safe supply of drugs because the street drug, the street drugs are poisoned, as you mentioned. They're deadly. What about addiction treatment and recovery? Getting people off of these drugs. Can we expand the number of beds for people to get them into treatment? in the short time we have left here. Yes, we have to, and we are. And, it, and it's a really good point you might you make, Mike. Like it's, decriminalization is not a magic bullet. It just asserts more clearly that this is, addiction's not a criminal problem. It's a healthcare problem. So yeah. we're building up those healthcare resources every day. We've added hundreds of new treatment beds. We're adding hundreds more, and there is more to do. Minister, thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate your, uh, your, the conversation. All the best to your listeners and, and to your team uh, for the end of this year. Uh, 
a tough year behind us and um, really hoping for better in uh, 2022. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now, as promised, with our great meat debate on the show today is eating meat bad for your health bad for the planet should you stop eating meat should we scale back meat production we hear a lot of this these days especially after the recent cop 26 climate change conference in glasgow scotland lots of concerns raised there about how meat production harms the planet now we've got an awesome panel coming up on this for you both sides of it now first have a listen to this now this is a this is a public service ad from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And the theme here is that meat is bad for the environment. Meat is not green. Have a listen. How about that steak on your plate? The United Nations has concluded that factory farming is one of the biggest contributors to the most serious environmental problems at every level, from local to global. Land degradation, climate change, pollution, water shortages, habitat destruction, These are not inevitable forces. The change is easy. All we have to do is tell everyone we know that meat's not green. Okay, meat's not green. That's the message from PETA. Now, on the other side of it, from the Beef Council of America, you may have heard their ads, Beef, it's what's for dinner. Now, have a listen to this ad. Beef stroganoff, beef bourguignon, Irish beef stew, beef brisket, chateaubriand, sauerbraten, roast beef, Catalonian beef ragu, Mongolian beef, chicken fried steak, steak Diane, grilled steaks balsamico, hamburgers, sizzling beef, spicy braised beef, barbecued beef ribs, beef wellington, pepper beef, beef jerky, beef with broccoli, beef burritos, beef fajitas, beef tacos. Do you see where I'm going with this? beef it's what's for dinner okay it's beef is what's for dinner okay should we eat beef or maybe we should not eat beef let's discuss now with my guests what a great panel we've got for you ashley byrne is on the line she is a senior campaigner with PETA, people for ethical treatment of animals ashley thanks for coming on today hello there thanks for having me on Thank you for being here. Also on the line, pleased to welcome her back to the show, Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She is the author of the book, Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. And I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Nicolette. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. Okay, okay thanks to both of you for being here. All right. Uh, Ashley, let me go to you first. Now, Nicolette was on the show last week, and then I heard from your colleagues at PETA that they wanted to come on, and we're pleased to do that. Can you give me your, can, what are your concerns with uh, eating meat and meat production right now? Um, sure. Well, you know, you mentioned the environmental concerns, uh, which are, are huge. Meat is catastrophic for the environment. Uh, you mentioned the health concerns. We are much better off taking meat out of our diets because meat eaters have higher rates of diabetes, stroke, obesity, certain cancers. Um, one thing you didn't mention, though, is is the animals who are not steaks and hamburgers. They're 
living, feeling beings just like us. And um, when they are raised and killed for killed for, for food, they suffer immensely. Even when they're coming from a so-called humane or sustainable farm, they uh, they endure a terrifying death at the slaughterhouse. So since no one needs to eat meat, since a plant-based vegan diet has never been more accessible and delicious, PETA is encouraging consumers to keep meat off their plates, and, and we're seeing them do so in droves. Okay, Nicolette, let me go to you. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman is, is a cattle rancher, and Nicolette, what would you say to that? Well, the first thing is it's definitely not the cow, it's the how. Um, I've been an environmental lawyer. Uh, I was working primarily on the issue of meat production for environmental organizations. I've written three books about the subject of sustainable meat production. I have looked very deeply at all the data, and I can tell you that the only thing the data shows is that there's a lot of bad stuff happening in terms of agriculture and the way it's being practiced today. And that includes in plant production, a lot of the most destructive plant uh, agriculture is plant agriculture. So Mm. oats and soy and wheat are all very problematic. And we really do need to fix the way food is produced. I'm in a lot of agreement with that part of the PETA argument. But the vast majority of the people around the world ethically believe it is ethical to eat meat. And so to tell everyone that their culture, their heritage, their diet is ethically wrong is not very compelling to me. And there is tremendously um, good science showing that the food that you get from animals is very rich in nutrients. And in fact, a lot of the nutrients that you get from meat, eggs, fish, and dairy um, are things that are difficult to get from plants or that your body doesn't absorb nearly as well when it comes from plants. So there's a really important role in human nourishment. And when uh, raising animals is done well, it's ecologically beneficial. So that's really the key point. Ashley, what do you say to that? Well, you know, first of all, I would say that um, the whether you're talking about the UN or, or Oxford University or the World Bank, we're actually seeing the authorities on this saying that uh, the meat industry is is not just unsustainable, that it's it's catastrophic for the environment. Um, I mean, for instance, even the lowest impact beef, such as grass-fed cows are still responsible for six times more greenhouse gases and 36 more times land usage usage than raising uh, legumes, for example. And, you know, if you look at the fact that um, on average, it produces just 18% of caloric intake when you're raising animals for meat, and, you know, we're using 83% of available farmland already, uh, you know, it's just, it's not only unsustainable, it is, you know, if you are transitioning to something like grass-fed, like pasture-raised, there just isn't the room to do it in a scalable way to, mm. to feed the world. Whereas, um, if we were to uh, transition global farmland to plant-based foods, we could reduce what we need by 75%. I mean, that's an area equivalent to the U.S., China, the European Union, and Australia combined. Okay. And also, just one thing also about, yeah, about sure. the harmful effects of raising, uh, you know, plant-based crops. An enormous amount of those plant-based crops right now, like soy, are actually being raised and fed back to animals. So if you look mm. at some of the most destructive plant-based crops, if you look, for instance, at 
the soy that's being, uh, you know, raised in Brazil, that's a culprit behind the rainforest being burned down. That's not going into veggie burgers. That's going into cattle feed. Okay, Nicolette, what do you what do you say to that argument? I was especially, I was interested in your thoughts on the sustainability argument that Ashley made there, because I know you're a cattle rancher and your cattle are, are fed grass, right? So I, I'm sure you believe that you're running a sustainable operation there. But your thoughts? Yeah, well, a couple of points. First of all, on the point about soy, that's certainly true. That a portion of that is going to feed animals in Asia and Europe. Actually, not in the U.S. But the, but the key point is that uh, a, a huge portion of the soy crop actually is not just being used for uh, direct consumption, but the oil that comes from that is all for human consumption. It goes into processed foods. So, again, this is kind of a function of the industrialized food system, which I think is really problematic, whether you're talking about meat or plants. And the overall point about the inefficiency of animals is simply a misunderstanding of the world's food system. About 70% of the world's uh, cattle are on places. Actually, it depends on where you are. It can be as much as in the United States as 85%. Cattle are actually on land that cannot be farmed. And so you're taking marginal, basically grassland. You're taking areas where you could not raise crops, and you're using that to produce food for human consumption. You're, you're creating milk, you're creating uh, meat, and if it's done well, so again, not the cow, but the how, if the, the, pa- the pasture raising of the animal is done properly, you actually have ecological benefits that come from that. You get much more soil biology happening, more soil activity, more carbon in the soil. You get sequestration of carbon from the atmosphere. There's really good research coming out of Michigan State University and many other places showing that well-raised cattle ranching actually has a complete offset as far as how much emissions that causes by that carbon sequestration in the soil. So it's all about how it's being done. And the land that it's being done on is almost entirely non-farmable land. So it's not really an apples, that's an apples and oranges comparison. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about meat and meat production. My guests are Ashley Byrne, senior campaigner at PETA, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Defending Beef. Lots of calls on this. Let's squeeze one in here right now. John in Vancouver. Go ahead, John. What do you want to say? I want to say that the best thing that we've uh, done this year as a family is stop eating meat, all meat. Uh, there are many there are many meat substitutes on the market today that that provide us with good, healthy nutrition and protein, and I think that we should all consider stopping eating meat. Okay, thank you for the call. Ashley, I'm sure you agree with that. I could not agree more. And, you know, I wanted on that note to jump back to to one point from earlier. As far as the idea that most of the world, you know, thinks it's okay to eat meat, actually, the thing is that most people have never set foot inside of a slaughterhouse. And Mm. as that footage as that reality of the ways that animals suffer, the way they suffer these grisly, violent deaths, uh, the way they go through this terror and fear at slaughter, even just the fact that uh, just a million animals a year die on their way transported to the slaughterhouse in, in gruesome ways, as that has become more widely available to people, thanks to, you know, thanks to the internet, thanks, you know, thanks to social media, we are seeing people going vegan in droves because that actually doesn't sit well ethically with most people. Okay. I really don't think that it's most people. The, the, the idea that most people are okay with this is, is true. I think that it's 
hidden from sight, and when most people are faced with it, they want nothing to do with it. Nicolette, what do you think of that? Well, actually, it's only in very recent human history that we're so divorced and separated from our food. And up until, you know, for literally thousands and thousands of years, humans around the world ate meat, and we're right face-to-face with the slaughter as it happened. There are problems in the way slaughter is done. I have been a a many years long advocate. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about slaughterhouses and improving them. My husband, Bill Nyman, has spent his entire uh, adult life working for improving conditions. So, yes, that's true that there is improvement that needs to be made. But taking the life of an animal for food is the question. And humans are part of nature. And nature, in nature, everything is recycled. Plants and animals eat each other. And I find it ironic that people that are so focused on the welfare of animals are trying to separate humans so much from the animal world and the way it works. Okay, I'm going to squeeze one more call, another call in here. Bill on the line. Go ahead, Bill. What do you want to say? Oh, hey, yeah, I've got a two-part question, actually. Um, I've been watching a lot of videos on the Great Reset, and one of the main topics on the Great Reset, of course, is you're going to eat a lot less meat. So part of my question is to the panel, especially the PETA spokesman there, is are are we going to eat a lot less meat, and is that part of the PETA agenda? Uh, And also my second question uh, as well to uh, PETA is, if I I eliminate meat from my diet 100%, no animal product whatsoever, will there be any health effect? Like, can I live without any protein, meat protein? Let's get an answer to that. Ashley, go ahead. Sure, we absolutely encourage people to remove all meat and all animal products entirely from their diets. Um, and one of the best reasons to do that is the health effects. Vegans have lower rates of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, um, and just many other diseases. And there are so many accounts out there now from people who will tell you about the drastic uh, change they saw in their health from going vegan. I'm a New Yorker. Our incoming mayor, Eric Adams, actually wrote a book about the fact that he had type 2 diabetes. He had gone blind from it and had nerve damage. He saw this reduced in, reversed in a couple of months okay. when he went whole foods, plant-based, and then his mother did the same. Okay, so let me... There is overwhelming evidence. Okay, let me go to Nicolette on that point, because Nicolette, I think your experience was the other direction. You went from being a vegetarian to eating meat, and I think you told me last week your health improved, right? Yeah, and in fact, the really important point is the whole foods part of the diet that Ashley was just referring to. Yes, I agree completely. There are tons of diet-related diseases in the industrialized world, and that needs to be changed. My whole advocacy is about people moving towards better diets, real food, whole foods, And if you're moving towards whole foods, whether that includes meat or not, you're going to see an improvement. But about 85%, depending on the research, some shows as much as 90% of people that are vegetarian or vegan return to eating meat at some point in their lives because they suffer health problems from having taken it totally out of their diet. So I think this is really, it's not about meat versus no meat. It's about are you eating real foods? Are you eating whole foods? And when we talk about a, the, the agricultural side of this, it's about is it industrial production or is it regenerative? And the main reason I am such a strong believer in animals and animal-based foods is because they play such an important role in truly regenerative food systems and a very important role in a real foods-based diet, which I think is the absolute solution for okay. all of the problems we've been talking about with, with respect to health. 
Okay, I would love to keep keep going here, but we're sadly we're up against the clock, and I know Ashley, you would love to chime in there again. So I would I would love to do this conversation again. It would be great to have you both back because uh, we've got a ton of phone calls here we simply can't get to. So I'd love to do it again. Thank you for a great conversation to both of you. Happy holidays, happy new year, and thanks a lot for doing this to both of you. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much.